Good evening, family. How are you doing this evening? Good, friends? All right. Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're beginning a new book this evening, 2 Samuel. Um, and just a, a note, um, I mentioned last week about our fast coming up, and I had mentioned that we would order some books because some folks had some questions about fasting and whatever. So Arthur Wallace did a really great book. It's called God's Chosen Fast. We actually have it in our bookstore now if you'd like to grab one. It's a quick read. It's, I think, what is it, 120 pages, but it goes through a lot of, it basically brings you through uh, scripture and helps you tie all your scripture together in strings, pearls to understand what a fast should be, why do we fast, how do we do it, where we're obviously not just denying the flesh, but spiritually not actively reading our Bibles and scripture. So I really want to encourage you to please, uh, if, if you don't, one, read your Bibles, that's the most important thing. Uh, but two, if you need something that can help with that, it's called God's Chosen Fast. It's in the bookstore. I encourage you to pick one up. Um, while we have uh, copies every year, we order them, and then every year they're gone, and we, we rinse and repeat. So uh, as we go into the second book of Samuel, please remember uh, there, there's no outline I'm going to hand out for this the way I would do a normal introduction, because in the Hebrew Bible, it was one book. So I, I often teach it like it's one book, even though in our canon we have it as two separate books. But if I could in some way help um, just in our brains understand um, what's going on here. First Samuel, if you think about all of the chapters 31 that we had read, and it really was the introduction to the monarchy, okay? That, that's what we see. Remember, before they had the monarchy, they had judges. So we got introduced through Samuel into the monarchy. Now, Second Samuel is going to chronicle the establishment of the Davidic uh, dynasty, if the best way I can say it. It's going to comprise roughly 40 years from 1101 B.C. all the way to uh, uh, 971 B.C., okay? And it's specifically focused in the land of Israel, in the land, the promised land of, that God has given them, okay, where we saw for Samuel things were still moving into the Philistine land, you know, different things like that. The other thing that's important to understand, and I get often asked this, especially in our canon, in our our Bibles today with two books. I said, well, if 1 Samuel uh, 25 says that Samuel died, then <laughs> as we read 2 Samuel, who wrote it, right? Because that's, I think that's a fair question then. If he's dead, uh, how'd this happen? So I, I love to take us to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29. And I think this gives us some insight into this uh, here this evening. If you look at verse 29, it helps us to understand how this was all put together by the leading of the Holy Spirit through three specific human authors, right? So while Samuel was alive, he certainly was inspired to write down those things so that you and I, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, would be an example for you and I today. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29, we see here that it was not certainly Samuel alone. Now, in the Acts of King David, first and last, indeed, they are written in the book. And we see Samuel, the seer, in the book of Nathan. Nathan, remember Nathan the prophet, right? Nathan is the other inspired author that is going to write and chronicle for us much of what happens in 2 Samuel, okay, as well. And also the prophet and the seer in the book of 
Gad the seer. So it's these three human authors that are inspired by the Holy Spirit that will take us through the rest of the works that we'll see all the way to first and even some suggest even part of Second Chronicles, okay? So kings and all of that, all the way through, it's those three human authors that were inspired to write these down. And specifically, as we look at it in context here, Second Samuel. Does that help? So now you understand the age-old question, if Samuel's dead, you know that Samuel wasn't the one that wrote it, but obviously Nathan and or um, Gad did. Everybody with me? Let's bow our heads, we'll pray, and we'll begin here this evening. Father, we just thank you wholeheartedly, Lord, that we can come before you. That, Lord, you have reconciled us uh, with you, Father, and certainly Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and through the Spirit, your Spirit, Lord. That as we open these pages, Lord, even knowing that you're going to speak into our hearts, uh, as we begin to look at this man David and his character further, Lord. We know you've already anointed him to be king, but as we move from this monarchy to this dynasty, um, just all the things that you tell us you want us to learn from these things. That's, that's why, Lord, you told us in Corinthians to read the Old Testament scriptures, that these would be examples for us. So, Jesus, we, we come eyes and ears and hearts opened wide to hear what your Spirit has to say, that we might grow and understand, and most importantly, Lord, fall deeper and more in love with you, more in love with your word, more in love with the works, and to realize just how much you love us and how much grace you've bestowed upon us, that we could walk in it, Lord, that we could walk in it. Lord, write these things on the tablets of our heart here this evening. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. 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 All right, second Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. If you, if you remember where we had left off in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, he had gone back. He pursued those that had taken his wives, as well as the 600 men. Well, 400 went, 200 stayed back, if you remember to watch the supplies. But they went to pursue and to take them out to, to, to just, you know, bring back their family members. And they were going to come back to Ziklag and see what the Lord would have. Because at this point, he had already gone to God and he's been strengthened by God. And then thereafter, he's gone to God again and said, Lord, what should I do? Should I pursue these men? So David is no longer backslidden. David's now walking in the Lord. He's now, that spirit of reconciliation is before him. So he's in Ziklag, and that kind of helps us understand. It says, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Now, that is a lot of information. That tells us immediately, at customs in that day, this man was mourning. Because the custom of that day would you would tear your clothes you would take dust and you would put it on your head, and it was uh, uh, certainly ceremonial, but also in a way to explain to all those witnessing that you were mourning. Today, uh, a lot of times when someone's mourning, what do we see them in our customs today do? They will wear uh, dark clothes or they may wear black, right? And we know that maybe they're mourning of 
some kind, right? So it's that same cultural idea. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Again, as part of that mourning and tradition, he would make himself lowly. He was humbled. He was, you know, trying to demonstrate to David a broken heart here. And David said to him, where have you come from? Now, David was fully understanding in 1 Samuel 31 that Saul had departed to go to battle with the Philistines as he was heading back to Ziklag because he already knew when the Philistines said, hey, David, we don't want you around. He knew that the five princes, the lords, they were going to go and attack Israel. So David's got to be wondering in Ziklag, how's the battle going? What's happening? What's on the battlefront? Are we winning? Are we losing? And so he's in Ziklag. He's a, he's, he starts to see this man. He's kind of Probably his stomach, he starts to get a little bit of uh, butterflies in his stomach, you know, because he loved Saul. It's his father-in-law. I mean, he loves him. He's probably in his heart going, oh, no, oh, no. Have you ever had that experience? You get a call uh, at an odd hour or something else is going on, and you begin to immediately tense up because you know the news could not be uh, necessarily positive or may not be something you want to hear, and, and you know everything emotionally that goes through that. I, I believe that's what David's experiencing right now when he says, where did you come from? Because he sees him mourning, he's on the ground, he's coming to David, David's putting two and two together. Where did you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now David's heart must have sank at this point because now it's confirmed. He's talking about my brethren. He's talking about my brethren. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. You can almost see it, David. Please tell me what's going on. Are, are they alive? Is Saul alive? Is Jonathan alive, right? You know, he's, he's certainly emotional and he's a, he's a real man here. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. Now you remember, Jonathan was a brother to him. He was one of the faithful few that actually stood by David. David would have probably been dead had not the Lord was, you know, sustained him. But if you remember, we read about how he had that agreement with Jonathan that, hey, if Saul, your father, is really going to come after me, then take the arrow and say, oh, you know, it's further away. Or instead of other, you know, otherwise bring it back to me. He was, he was going to have that communication. And you remember Jonathan shot the arrow, sending Saul away into hiding. So he went against his own father for the righteousness because David had done nothing wrong. And so to hear that his, probably one of his best friends, closest uh, brothers, if you can say it that way, is now dead. And just how his heart must have immediately broke. And then to find out that his king, the Lord's anointed. Do you remember that's how he would refer to him? Saul, the Lord's anointed to find out that his king is dead. Now, I'm, I'm sure in some of our lives today, many of us would probably say, well, great. It's been 20 years. Let's ascend to the throne. It's time. But I want you to see the beautiful character of David because he has a heart after God, doesn't he? And nowhere will we find that in David's character or heart. It's not about his ascension to the throne. He genuinely loves Saul and is mourning and broken, I believe, because he probably knew Saul had never repented. Saul had never gotten right with God, and he died in that state. Some of us have known people like that that we love, whether it's family members or friends or 
We've talked to them on several occasions, maybe ministered to them, gone over their house and visited, sharing the gospel. And then we get a call and found out that, you know, they died. And we just pray that last breath, right? Did they call out Jesus? Jesus. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? He wanted confirmation. How do you know? Then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance. Now, that's code for us here as we read scripture. Is God sovereign? Is there ever chance? Right? They're mutually exclusive. Either God is sovereign or there's chance. It can't be both. In other words, God knows all things, allows all things. Everything that happens to you in your life, good, bad, indifferent, has to go, if you're a born-again believer in Christ, has to go before God, and God either allows it or he doesn't. That's the sovereignty of God. So there is no such thing as by chance. So circle that in your Bibles, because I believe that's code to help us to understand this man's integrity that's coming to them. This man, possibly a liar, as we're going to read here. To be on Mount Gilboa, where there was Saul leaning on his spear. Now, we got a different count, don't we? Because when we read 1 Samuel 31, what did we read? It was very clear to us that if you look back in 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword, not a spear, and he fell on it. And when his armor bearer, and I believe this is very important in this account, verse 5, when his armor bearer saw, please circle that in your Bibles, he saw Saul. When he saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on the sword and died with him, right? So he says that he saw Saul die. Now, is it possible? And then scholars come at this passage in two different ways because it's not contradictory. Either this man is a liar and he's trying to win influence or somehow favor with David, or this man is telling the truth and we're getting the f further story of what happened after the armor bearer died. That Saul himself actually wasn't quite dead yet. So this man came up and took a spear. Or maybe, who knows, one of the uh, men coming through in the battle took a spear and threw it into him. We, we really don't know 100%. But it is interesting, like I said earlier, when you start to see the character of this man, you be Bereans and come up with your own conclusion. But it seems to me, as I read this passage, this man thinks he's going to get a reward. So because he thinks he's going to get a word, I think that's the motive behind this. But again, you be Bereans here. So he says, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed <clears throat> the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered, I am an Amalekite. Now, if this is a true story, this should... Uh, bring to mind all kinds of things about fate. Why would I say fate? Because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, do you remember in verses 2 and 3, I'll just turn us back there for a moment just to 
refresh our memories. The Lord, I'll begin in verse 1, speaking to Samuel. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he abused him on the way he came up from Egypt. Remember, those that would, the last, the women and children that would be at the end as they were traveling through, making their way to the promised land, how they um, were just terrible, and they went back, Amalek and his people, and they began to slaughter the women and children that were in the back. You know, he was, he was just, it's repulsive what he was doing. And he says, God says, I'm going to punish him for that. I'm going to judge him for that, okay? And he says, now go and attack. So he had given Saul a very specific command here in verse 3. Go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them, but both kill man, women, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. But do you remember what happened? This is significant because we learn that he goes through and he took, in verse 8, Agag, king of the Amalekites, and he didn't kill him. He didn't obey God. Now, isn't this interesting that if this man is telling the truth, that the very man that would take his life was a man that was of the tribe or of the people of Amalek? the Amalekites. Had he done what God had commanded, this man wouldn't be alive to ever bring harm to him. Isn't that interesting? So if you believe that this is a true account from this man, then you see the destiny that catches up with you when you don't obey God. The judgment will find you out without reconciliation or repentance, that is. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. Now again, this, this sounds like a lie because it contradicts what we read of the armor bearer. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. What, what is David doing now? David, as a leader, he leads this demonstration. He tears his clothes and, he, you know, all but puts dust on his head, right? He could have done that. What is he trying to say? He's mourning. He's broken. And he does that. And then what happens? All his men take a cue from that and they begin to do the same thing. They didn't turn around and go, but wait a minute. These guys, why Saul wanted to kill? How many times, David, were we on the run for 20 years? In caves, in the wilderness? This man, he deserved, he deserved to die, David. He was a wicked man. He was an evil man. He did what was right in his own eyes. But that wasn't David's heart, was it? You see, I think David, having the heart after God, sees things like God sees them. And he saw that man, and he saw him like Jesus sees us. He saw the best opportunity of righteousness in that man. That if Saul would repent and come to the Lord, he's no different than David. He's no different than you and I. Without Jesus, we're all fallen. We're all wicked. We're filthy rags. And I think he began to realize in humility, David understood his own depravity as he looked at Saul. And he knew that if it wasn't for God strengthening him, how was David any different? other than he had a heart after God. And I think that gives us great insight into the heart God has for us today and, and what's going on today. And that's why in these last days, Scripture tells us that in Matthew 24, that the hearts will do what? They will wax or grow cold. 
because more and more terrible things are happening, more evil and difficulty, and so hearts begin to grow cold, but we're told we're not to be about that, right? Our hearts can never grow cold because if we let our hearts grow cold, then we miss the opportunity to ministry, minister to someone. And even in the church or ministry, there's many times we're going to do good for others and they're going to wield a, an accusation at us. They're going to, they're going to lie to about us. They're going to say things and, and we're going to want to defend ourselves. We're going to want to fight back. And you know what our best defense is? To let the Lord be our vengeance. To let the Lord judge all things because he's a righteous judge and he knows truth. And, and I find it so freeing when that happens. I've been in those circumstances where, you know, accusations are, are being hurled. And boy, it, it's like getting kicked in the, the belly, right? The tummy, you know, it, it, oh, it hurts. It, it hurts. And I realize what Jesus feels like all the time. Because how many humans every day, his creation, reject him? And I'm never closer to God than when I begin to understand the heart of God. And I begin to understand the things that God has experienced and he feels. And, and then I begin to have a mind after God. As we read in uh, Philippians chapter 2 and 3, to have a mind after the Lord. And all of a sudden I become softened by that. And I look and even the person that's bringing accusation, I, all I want to do is pray for them. All I want them to do is be restored. All I want them to do is be right. And immediately any ill feelings I have have dissipated. They're gone. And all I'm left with is love, is pure love. And only Jesus can do that. If you've gone through that in your life, and I, I think probably most of us here have in one way or another, if you've gone through that, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about. You know the supernatural. That's supernatural. You can't do that in your strength. You can't do that. You don't feel that. You don't want that. But when Jesus has a hold of you, oh, the way he takes those, the dross and takes those things away and what he leaves is even more pure and more beautiful and refined. You're, you're left with a beautiful love, a perfect love. You know, that's one of the reasons, you, you know, our radio program that we have on uh, Hope FM, some of you listen to it, it's on 3.30. They're, I think in the coming uh, month here, they're going to be moving it to primetime 4.30. Just, you're going to get a, probably a notification on that. Um, but do you know the name of the program the Lord had shown me and given me when we were starting five years, six years ago? His perfect love. It's his perfect love. As I began to look at everything he was doing, it always came back to his perfect love. And that's why we're here today. That's why we're here as believers in Christ. Because he has perfect love and has given us perfect love and he's given us grace, something we can never deserve. Well, not only is this contagious, because all his men turn around and tear their robes and start to mourn too, because instead of holding on to the grievance and thinking, wow, this guy for 20, I mean, I want you to put, put yourself in that position, 20 years on the run. Don't you think you'd have a little animosity? Just maybe a little bit upset here? 20 years? Not even able to return to your homeland? Israel? Your wife, your kids were captured because of what was going on and everything. You had to go get them back and food, shelter, living out in the wilderness, hiding in caves. But please notice with me, there's, there's none of it. None of it. It's like Jesus took it from them in a moment. It's all gone. 
It's all gone. And, and he can do the same thing in your heart and my heart in a moment if we give it to him. It's all gone. And they mourned and wept and fasted. Isn't that interesting as we're getting ready to go into our church fast? To see what the Lord will speak to us this year individually and corporately as a church. Until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I just love his pure heart. It's his heart that led them. It wasn't David the murder, you know, the, the killer of the ten thousands. No, it was the heart after God. They saw Jesus in David. And sometimes that's what people see you and you and I. They see Jesus and it's contagious. And they want to be around us and we want to be around them, don't we? We like to be together, don't we, as a flock here? We like to be together with like-minded believers. We pray that way. Lord, it's, we're, ah, oh, we can rest. We're home away from home, right? I heard someone say. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien Amalekite. So David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Can you imagine this man's face? What? He thought things were going real good. Everybody's mourning. They're brave. Yeah, I gave him the crown. Oh, man, I'm in good. I'm going to certainly get a good position in David's army. Remember, he's with the Philistines right now. He's living in Ziklag, right? So he's thinking maybe, maybe you know, as a Malachite, maybe I can get in good here. And all of a sudden, he looks at him and he goes, how is it that you could touch the Lord's anointed? And I could just imagine that in Malachite's face. <gasps> what? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. Right to the point. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, please understand, he's still grieving. He's not relieved. He's still mourning at this point. Then David lamented. Sometimes we need that. Someone we love dies. Someone we love is hurt. Something tragic happens in our lives. And sometimes people will come to us and say, just get over it. Like it's a switch we flick. You can't do that. You don't get to flick a switch. It's, it's not that simple. It's a, the Lord has to, I believe there's supernatural things going on. First, I believe the Lord enlarges the heart. The very first thing he does. Because if he kept the capacity of the heart at the exact same size, there'd be no room for it because the heart would be cracked and broken. So you try putting something more into it, it would just seep out. Picture a heart broken and pouring something into it. It would just run all over. I believe the first thing he does is mend the heart and then enlarge it. Scripture says he enlarges the heart, by the way. You can read that. But he enlarges the heart. And then you know what he does because there's more capacity? He puts more of himself in you, more of his love, more of his compassion, more of his comfort. And because of that, your heart becomes larger. And look, the Grinch ain't got nothing. You know, how many times do you watch that around Christmas? All right, the Grinch, you know, his heart grew three times. <sighs> what is Jesus doing every day in our hearts? Because there's so much pain. 
How do you look at a, a woman or a man that just lost their two-year-old? The two-year-old just went to be you know, with the Lord that way. And what, what, you know, what, you, what are you going to say to them that's ever going to make it right? Nothing. Well, the best thing you can do is come alongside and just hug them and stay with them. There's, it'll, they'll, they'll never get over it. It's not something you ever get over. No, what you learn to do with the Lord's strength is you learn to occupy. You learn to be about his business and you learn to put your eyes on Christ and you keep going and you start to, you know, my grandfather used to say, it's very interesting. He says, the older you get, son, you would call me son. The older you get, he says, the more of your friends go to be with the Lord. And there's less and less in any way holding you here. You, your desire to want to stay or hang around begins to flee. You, you want to go be with Jesus. And he says, I think that's just a natural process that God has created so that the human heart doesn't try to hold on. And I look at my grandfather. Here's a man that got through eighth grade. He had an eighth grade education, right? From Italy, didn't, well, Sicily be accurate, he didn't have any textbook knowledge that way. He worked in a salt mine, was in a concentration camp for a while. And that man spoke wisdom, biblical wisdom. And I thought, boy, Lord, isn't that true, right? The older we get, the less we want to hold on to the things here, don't we? We just want to heap treasures in heaven and be with Jesus. That's why we pray, Maranatha, Lord, come. Lord Jesus, come, right? Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it was written in the book of Jasher. Now, this is interesting, right? We, we have this mentioned in the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, it seems to be a writing, the best we can tell if you look at Joshua 10, 13, it seems to be a writing of Hebrew poetry. So it seems that... Uh, as David would scribe that, that some of this Hebrew poetry got written into this, this book here of Jasher. We simply don't have a, a surviving copy of it, and, and that's okay. That doesn't make our Bibles anyway incomplete. If God wanted us to have it, we'd have it, right? We have the Psalms. We have the hymns that way. But, but certainly, um, I bet when we get to heaven, we'll be able to look at part of that book and see the beautiful poetry that we're talking about here that this song is included. He goes on to say, the beauty Please notice that with me. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high place. How the mighty, so I see beauty and now we see mighty. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering, nor the shield of the mighty is cast away there. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, that from the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. He's describing the mightiness, the, the power. He's describing the beauty of what was happening, that, that these men went to fight for their country. They went to battle. They went to fight as the Lord would have them over these Philistines. 
The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. In other words, no bitterness, because David trusted the Lord. He understood this was God's plan. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. Please notice how he's referring to both of them. No bitterness in any of this. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Isn't that beautiful to see David's heart? I am distressed for you. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. Certainly there's nothing some scholars have said. Is there homosexual? No, that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about a brotherly love, a beautiful brotherly love. And maybe, can I just say this, that maybe the reason that David didn't have that love in his marriage or with his wife was because there was not, what, a monogamous marriage. He had multiple wives. Maybe he never grew close to his wife that way, the way that God had intended him to be, one man, one woman. That's God's design and definition of marriage. It wasn't multiple wives. So maybe one of the reasons that also he says you're surpassing the love of a woman is because maybe David didn't truly have what I believe many of you and I have today, a Christian marriage, as it's defined by Ephesians 5, those that are married here, a, a surrendered, right? Marriage can never be selfish. If you have any party in a marriage that's selfish, it will tank the marriage. No, marriage by definition is selfless. It is selfless right? Not that we don't blow it, you know. I blow it all the time in my marriage. I'd be the first to say it. My wife would agree, you know. I, I, I say that gently. She'd agree. But you know what? She is more than my best friend, you know. And she has been placed by God there in my life that way. She is truly my helpmate. Um, and to understand what that koinia, that, that beauty that you can have in that marriage is. And to also understand David's heart here, also explaining the beauty in friendship too, that you can have such a beautiful friendship with a brother or sisters, ladies. You can have sisters and have such a beautiful friendship that it is so full of love. And you begin to feel close and you begin to feel just enveloped by that. It's precious. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. That's why we know the Bible doesn't teach polygamy, friends. It had happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, please notice, as he's been strengthened, this is the second time we read it again now in chapter 2, verse 1, that he goes to God, right? He wants these important steps. He wants to understand God's plan, and he wants to walk in them. So it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David, or go up. David said, Where shall I go up? 
And he said, Hebron, don't, don't you love that? Don't you wish it was always like that with the Lord where you, okay, Lord, is it Skittles today? No, I, you know, is it one cheesecake? Is it two? I just want to know, Lord, right? I'm a foodie, you know that. But whatever, whatever that looks like for you, you know, how many times have we prayed, Lord, should I take a new job? Should I buy a house? Should we move? Should we, you know, all the things we pray about. And many times it's years and years of just continuing praying and being on our knees to wait to hear from the Lord because I believe often he's, al he's aligning or he's arranging everything to come into the right timing of position for us. And had we not understood that, we might have jumped ahead of the Lord, right? And it could have been devastating. Or we might have been too far back behind the Lord. I love his timing. It's always perfect. But I think what we see here is that relationship. David understood what relationship is. It's communication. It's prayer. It's talking to the Lord. It's waiting on the Lord. Sometimes the Lord will answer you quickly. You know? Remember when the Lord told me to come down here? I knew that night. I didn't have to wrestle with God in, in regards to, are you sure, Lord? No, I knew. When it came time to move, it took months, eight to be specific. We made that trip for eight months, and it wasn't until the Lord had given us a passage in Scripture that says, now you're to cross over the Jordan. I knew what that meant to my heart. It didn't mean that I was to get on a plane and go to Israel and cross over the Jordan. I knew that meant the Susquehanna River. And I knew I was to cross over that. So that's when I move here from Rochester, New York. The Lord spoke to me. His word left off, left off the page into my heart. You know, in, in ministry here, every pastor that's on staff has received a word from the Lord. Every elder that's on staff, every staff member, I, you know, in the office, uh, Kelia, you know, to, all of them have received a word from the Lord. All our teachers, you know, when, when I did the interview, I remember we... Ms. Morgan, you know, our, our teacher, when we hired, one of the first things I, as part of the, I said, I want you to go get a scripture. She said, okay. I, I can only imagine what she was probably thinking. That's part of the interview? Yeah, yeah, it is. And then she called, you know, several days later, she said, I got a word from the Lord, and here's what the Lord gave me, and okay, great. Why do we do that? Why do we want to hear from the Lord? Why did David need that? He needed that for confidence, he needed that for knowing and desiring to be in God's plan so that if there comes a point where maybe in your service, maybe at your job, maybe in the ministry you're serving in here in the church, maybe in some aspect of your family where you're living, what you're doing, or what have you, you get the urge to say, you know what? I'm tired. This is really hard. I, I think I want to quit. I want, to, I want to go do something different, or I want to, I want, I want to entertain something different. And, and you come sit down with me in the office, one of the first things I'm going to, if you ask me what should I do, I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know. My Bible doesn't say um, John should take the job at Costco. It, do, it doesn't say that, or, you know, it doesn't say what you're to do like that. But the Lord will speak to your heart, and if he confirms it in his word, he'll also release you with his word. You don't get to go anywhere until God releases you. And I think that's the greatest promise ever. I, I, Ezekiel chapter 2 is the word of the Lord gave me to come down here. 
There are many days in ministry that are difficult. Friends, you know that. There's many days in your jobs, in your offices that are difficult. And you might come to the conclusion you want to quit your job or you want to, I hope none of you ever think about walking out on your marriages or something like that because that's certainly not scriptural, right? I mean, but maybe there's something like that that's going on in your heart and you're, you're searching these things. Well, you, you go to the word of God and did he release you? Did he give you a passage that was as powerful as that first passage? And I, I suggest even more powerful that tells you you're released. Because until that point, it doesn't really matter what you want. He didn't ask my opinion. David didn't, God didn't go, David, what do you think? No, he asked God for God's will. And then David now has to do what? Be obedient. You see, this is, this is relationship. This is what it looks like. And we've lost a little bit of that today in our culture. We kind of we, we've adopted this, this culture of relativism and this idea of we want to do what we want to do and, and we don't think about how it affects or impacts other people. And, and I know, look, I'm not looking at you. I know you don't do that, right? But there are many people in the world that live that way. Please understand that. And if we're not careful, we can slip into that same heart. When God gives us a word, we obey. And David, he'll do that. Where shall I go up? And he said to him, Hebrew, you know, Hebron from Ziklag, okay? So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king. Now, this is interesting. Was not... Uh, David already anointed king. Yes, he was by God, by the Holy Spirit. A man never anoints anyone. Please understand that. When we look at our pastors here, or you've seen it when we've anointed, I think Pastor Steve was the last pastor that we prayed over. The Holy Spirit anoints the man. We simply recognize the anointing on the man's life, and we acknowledge that by laying hands on him and praying, just like we read in Acts chapter 13. We don't go off to a school and get a degree or paid $19.95 on the internet to get an ordination paper that says, you are now ordained as a minister. It's about worth less than the paper you just paid for to print it out. The Holy Spirit, because we're God where God guides, he provides. Where God leads, he fulfills. And if it's any work of man, it will fall apart or never even begin. But if it's a work of God, it will be sustained. And, and that's a huge encouragement because as I read this, then the men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They were saying, we will have you be our king, David. And David didn't have to waver at that. He's like, Samuel had already anointed me because he acknowledged the moving of the Holy Spirit by the Lord. What is this? Well, it's 1 Samuel 16, chapter 12 and verse 13. You know what this is called? Fulfilled prophecy, a fulfilled promise. We see it here several chapters later in 2 Samuel. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were those, the ones who buried Saul. So th this is interesting. They give us different additional detail. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of the Lord for you, sh you have shown kindness to your Lord, 
to Saul, and you have buried him, right? Now, if you remember, we read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 31. If you look back at verses 11 through 13, we just read it last week. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night. Please notice we circled last week, valiant men. Uh, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons off the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and then they took their bones and buried them from the termist tree at Jabesh from fasted for seven days, right? Why do we read that? Because David recognized that these men, as he gives them this detail, which isn't just coincidental, he recognized that there are valiant, valiant men, mighty men, right, that are part of Jabesh Gilead, that would take the risk of going back to the city, grabbing these men's bodies off of a wall, they could have lost their lives themselves, to bring and have a proper memorial or burial for these bodies. And so David now, being king of Judah at this point, he will be king of all Israel, but right now initially Judah, you'll, you'll see that in a minute, because we know that his, uh, well, we'll read too, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you know, Saul's former general is going to have something to say about it. And basically his name's Abner and he's going to turn around and he's going to raise up uh, his, Saul's living son that's still alive as a king. And some of the other tribes of Israel, specifically Benjamin, are going to then go and they're going to wage war and there's going to be a civil war that breaks out. But before all that happens, David receives this. He gets this idea. He says, you know what? These men are faithful. He looks at these men in the character of the men, says these are valiant men, and he knows they're going to be useful for David. They're going to be useful for David in, in the army and to be part of uh, David's men. Verse 7, Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Just, I'm just throwing that in there, by the way, guys. I'm now king over Judah. If you're looking for a king, I'm a king for hire. How about that? No, he's not saying that, right? What he's saying is that Saul's dead. You honored Saul. I've been anointed king. The natural inclination is to come and obviously acknowledge David as king for Jabesh Gilead and these mighty men. Now we read here, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth. right? Now, let's pause there. Do you, do you remember who Abner was? Abner is Saul's cousin. Okay, First uh, Samuel chapter fourteen, verse fifty. You, you, we read that he's he's Saul's cousin. The first time we read about him, it was First uh, Samuel chapter seventeen, verse fifty-five. Okay, and uh, verse through fifty-seven, we read about the first experience where he had come up, and you remember the whole thing with uh, Saul and David coming in, and they have this kind of dance, if I can say it that way, is, you know, he's coming in, this is David, and they're going through the whole thing, who are you? Uh, the second time, you might remember, was uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 14. Do you remember the second occurrence? Probably much more memorable for David, where, oh, and also Abner, where uh, he's in the cave, right? He could have turned around and or sorry, actually, it wasn't the case. He came out and he had gone through all the troops as they had gathered in the circle. And he turned around and he came in and he was able to take his water jug and his spear, right? He always traveled with that spear. And he turned around and he got on the other side and then he called out. And Abner, you know, hears this and he's like, who is that? And then he basically all but says, you know, I love Saul more than you do, Abner, because I guard, you know, I, prote I protected his life. I could have killed him. Because Abishai said, I'll stab, you know, I'll put the sword through his head right now. He says, I stopped Abishai from doing that. I guarded him better than you did, Abner. You, th you don't think Abner uh, let that go or forgot that easy, do you? 
He probably thought, well, okay. So what's he going to do about that? Well, he's the commander of Saul's army, and he took Ishbosheth. Now, we don't really know. If you, if you study this, we know it's one of Saul's children. He had Jonathan, Abinadab, and um, Melchushala. But we don't know Ishbosheth, who he was. Um, was it a concubine? Was it? We don't know uh, the maternal side or how this comes about. We really don't get that uh, detail here. Um, so... We just know that he is one of his sons, or was he an adopted son? We really, but he's, he's, the Bible scripture tells us he's the son, the Saul. And he brought him over to Manahim, or Manaheim. Um, not terribly surprised by that. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Ezrites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, Israel, okay, over Benjamin, and over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, the Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Please notice that with me. He reigned two years. What does that mean? For two years, David was long-suffering. David was waiting on the Lord. David didn't take matters into his own hands. For two whole years, he was waiting to see, what is the Lord going to do here? Right? I think that's David's patience there. Again, a good picture of this. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Menahim to Gibeon, right? And Joab the son of Zariah and the servant of David went out and met him by the pool of Gibeon. Now, what's interesting here is we see Joab. Now, Joab had two brothers, right? Abishai and Ashel. And we're going to read about Ashel in a little bit down here further on. But um, uh, in verse 18, but he had these two brothers. What's going to ultimately happen is they are going to end up coming together. They're going to pull these men together and they're going to say, let's let these men fight it out. And they're going to come together and they're going to draw blood on each other. They're going to basically fight. They're going to draw blood. And notice that neither Abner nor Joab themselves are actually engaging in this battle. They're more or less sitting back as generals and watching as these men kill themselves and fight it out. Okay? So just to set the stage here. So obviously he... The question is, where'd Joab come from? We believe he was one of the 400. He had to be one of the 400 to join J uh, David um, back when he was in uh, uh, Adum, the cave of Adum, right? Or Adum, back in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2. That's the best we can, you know, scholarly come up with to figure out where did, where did Joab just arrive on the scene. Certainly, we think he was one of the 400 men that steps up here. So they sat down on one side of the pool, well, let me back up. And Joab and the son of Zariah and the servant of David went out and met by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down and one on one on the side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, so again, two military men here, this interesting conversation, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. We're going to have a contest. I think this is sick personally, but so they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth and the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. You, you do realize what this is happening here. This is a beat their chest moment, right? My guys are tougher than your guys, right? My, my guys are going to beat your guys. So they're kind of having this, uh, this contest here with all these men. Verse 16, and each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle. We're going to read more about this battle in verses 31, 30 and 31. But effectively, what ends up happening that day, just to 
tell you is that you have the losses for David is about 20, and the losses for um, Abner is about 360, okay? So David's uh, men under Joab certainly uh, won the battle or won this contest. I mean, not even close, 20 to 360. But if you look at all of it, is a waste, a loss of life. There's, these are, you know, they're, fam- they're brothers from different tribes. This is Israel. They should not be having this civil war that way. So there was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, the three sons of Zariah, do you remember who that is? That's David's sister, okay, were there, Joab and Abishai and Ashel. So now we start to get the picture of who Joab really is. Right? And who these boys, Joab, Abishai, and Ashel are. Who are they? They're David's nephews. These are David's nephews. Now we know how he was one of the 400, and from one of the 400, he ended up becoming a general for David. So when you wonder, is there nepotism? Right? A lot of times in ministry, people, boy, it seems like pastors and then their children and then, you know, the t- everybody's family serving in the church. And yeah, it's. It's actually biblical. I mean, it's scriptural. We see nepotism all over the place in scripture, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. The idea is, has the Lord called? Has the Lord anointed? But it shouldn't just be because uh, we saw that with Eli. Remember his two sons? It shouldn't just be because you're my family. I put you in ministry because they disqualified themselves, right? Weren't they uh, terrible when they took the fish hooks and they put the meat and took the meat from the people and misrepresented God that way? Right? So clearly just because you're a relative of somebody in ministry doesn't mean you should be in ministry. But we do see nepotism within Scripture. People ask about it. Yes, it is there. Now, the three sons of Zerai were there. Um, I read that. Joab, Abishai, and Ashel. And Ashel was a fleet of foot as wild gazelle. It means he was fast. That guy could book. So Ashel pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right or left from following Abner. So Abner there. They left. Abner lost 360 men. He starts heading out. I don't know what uh, Ashel was thinking at that moment. Maybe he's thinking, hey, we got him now. We only lost 20 of our guys. Let's just kill the the general here, Abner, and, and just end this whole thing. Well, then Abner looked behind him. So Abner's riding away, right? He looks behind him, and he sees... Because Ashel's so fast, he's on foot. This guy's like a gazelle. He's like, you know, he's speedy Gonzalez. He's running right after him. And he answered, he says, I am. Are you Ashel? I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. You understand what he was saying. He's saying, take one of my guys. Take one of my guys out and just take their armor. They're, they're, they're on your, your level. You, you know, Joab's a general. Abner's a general. In that context of that time, the generals didn't get were untouchable. You're, the infantry and the other men, they were the ones that would fight and die. But the generals were not supposed to, right? There was this idea. Remember, even Saul as a king, he took Agag, the king of Amalek, the Amalekites, and what did he do? He didn't murder him. Why? Didn't kill him as God had said he should, right? Why? Because he said, well, because if I kill him, then maybe they're going to say, well, they can kill me. And all of a sudden, kings will start taking out kings. So it was all about self-preservation. It was all about self-preservation. So he looks at Abner. He says, hey, just take one of my guys, and then you can have his armor, and then, you know, turn back. You know, you can, you can have a little trophy here. He says, turn to the right or left. Pick either side, right, of the young man and take his armor for yourself. But Ashel would not turn aside from following him. It was not going to be officer versus officer, right? He was, Abner didn't want that. So Abner said again to Ashel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? Fair question, right? Very true. Joab is not going to rest 
uh, literally because of the revenge he's going to seek, and we'll see that in chapter 3 next week if the Lord should tarry in verses 22 through 29, but he's not going to rest until he pursues him to avenge his brother's death. However, now please understand, in context, what do we see Abner doing here? Abner's told him to turn away, didn't he? He didn't turn away. Abner's now going to take this man's life. What do, what do we call this? This isn't, this isn't murder. He didn't willfully go out and try to kill this man. What is he doing? It's self-defense. Because if he doesn't take this man's life, what's he going to do? He's going to take Abner's life, right? So this is why you're going to see in chapter 3 where David is going to mourn Abner's death eventually because Joab's going to turn around and avenge his brother. And you're going to see that David, I don't want to say turns, but being that this is, you know, Joab's his nephew, but in essence, he brings judgment on him and he puts a curse, not curse, but he, he, he says, look, from your family, from this whole situation, he goes on and he, he lays it down hot. He gives him a very strong rebuke, even though he's kin and family, because he recognizes what he did was wrong. He murdered Abner, and yet all Abner did was practice self-defense. I think that's interesting in how the scripture teaches us that if somebody's going to harm us, we have every right to stand up and defend ourselves. Every right to do that. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of his spear so that the spear came out of his back, just making sure. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where a shell fell down, they died and stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. So now the two brothers are coming. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, and, which is before Gaia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit. So you start to see what happens, right? And took their stand on the top of the hill. So they got the high position. Joab and his other brother, right, Abishai, are now coming along. And they're going to go, and they're going to finally see that Abner's retreating, retreating. And then all of a sudden, he meets up with the tribe of Benjamin. They join with him, and now Abner's not retreating anymore. And what effectively is going to break out is a civil war, okay, at this point. But Abner has the high position. And you know anything about military strategy? It's always best to have the high position because then your, your forces have to come up at you, and you have direct line of sight to them, and they have an obstacle to get up to you or around you somehow. By having the higher ground, you always have advantage. And that's what this is showing. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Right? So he's like, stand down. Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing your, their brethren? Again, you got to look at Abner. This is the second time. He told his brother, right? Hey, go to the left or go to the right. You don't want to do this. He didn't learn. He had to take action. Now he's telling Joab, who's the general for David, hey, stand down. You don't stand down. This is going to be bitter because there's going to be a lot of bloodshed here. And Joab said, as God lives, he basically calls for peace or a ceasefire here. And Joab says, you know what? Good idea. As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up by pursuing their brethren. 
It would have been a long, bloody civil war is what he's saying. So Joab blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went out all that night throughout his plain, throughout the plain, crossed over the Jordan and went through all Bithron and they came to Menahanim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Ashel, that's where we get our 20, right? I read to you. But the servants of David who had struck down Benjamin, of Benjamin and of Abner's men, 360 men. So we see at the end of the day, Abner lost 360 of his men, and Joab lost 20 of his men. Certainly a victory for Joab, but ultimately not good because it's Israel killing themselves. Certainly an abomination to the Lord. But Abner should never have gone and took Ishbosheth and put him in a place to be king of Israel because he was not God's anointed. David was God's anointed. So, in some aspects, you often have, you, you got to wonder, and, and we're going to close here, you got to wonder, and, and we'll come back to this. You'll hear me come back to this as we go through the rest of the book. How many times I'll come back to this passage, possibly, where I'll look at it and say, what would have happened? with the tribe of Benjamin, had Joab not said, let's do a ceasefire. Because was Joab right, not for self-defense for his brother's sake, that he's wrong, right? But was he right in that David is king, and had God not already given victory to David's men, 20 versus 360 of losses? That What if he would have turned around Joab and pursued would maybe David would have been asked or God, maybe Joab would have gone to God, what should I do? And maybe at that point, Benjamin would have been nearly wiped out, no longer a threat, and then Israel would no longer have been looking to Ishbosheth to be king. They would have immediately looked to David rather than death that's going to ensue. Ishbosheth's going to lose his life in a most tragic way, in the most uh, uh, sort of cheap way. He's going to actually be laying in his bed. And uh, they're going to go in and they're going to stab him right in the stomach, right? It's not a, that's not a, a warrior's victory, right? That's not a noble fight. So I often wondered what would have been different. I know when we get up to heaven, I can ask Jesus, Lord, did you want him to take Ishbosheth out at that point so that there would, the civil war would have been ended at that point, Okay. But it's just something I'm thinking about, just free information. I'm sharing it with you guys. Then they took up a shell and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And this began really... This began, really, I believe, when God had chosen David and put his spirit upon David. This wasn't something that just happened right here. These were already in the works for 20 years. It's just coming to culmination. How many times does God move in your life, even today, and has he been moving in your life for something that he's already promised you or told you would be, and now it's all coming to fruition, and it's happening? I can think of something that's top of mind for me, he said he's coming. He said he's coming. And all these things are happening just as he said they would. And I believe 
He's coming very soon. I, I, I often, I, I will tell you, I know Pastor Chuck used to say the same thing, but I, I believe in my heart the very same thing. You know, look up, your redemption draws nigh. I never know at the end of every service if this is going to be the last time that I preach the word of God from this pulpit. And I think about that because I don't know what's going to ensue next as far as what's before us. I know the Lord's coming. Jesus is coming. But I don't know, is there going to be difficulty? Is there going to be, you know, imprisonment? Is there going to be different things, you know, persecution upon the church? So every time we meet, I feel just an enormity of um, opportunity to make sure that we are getting the word of God getting it written on the tablets of our hearts because it may be the last word we have before Jesus comes and takes us. And I want us to be ready. I want you all to be ready, holding nothing back. Amen? Will you stand and pray with me? I don't know about you, but when you think about that war that's going to go on, that civil war that's going to ensue, and you can read chapter 3 and 4 for next week if the Lord should tarry. But I, I think of it often, and I don't know how many times you've been through this passage. I've been through it many, many times. I, I love to, as I teach it, each time I teach it, I take a rake through it differently. And, you know, the Lord shows me something different. I, I use the term rake. It's something different that the Lord will show me through it and come out with something different each time. And... Um, the thing the Lord was showing me about this was the battle of the flesh versus the spirit, the battle that continues to ensue, that civil war that's going on inside of us every single moment of every day, the battle of the flesh and the spirit, right? And we need to just put the death, the flesh. You know, that's why I kind of, I think you can, you can tell where I kind of come at on this hill and what I think Joab should have done. I think I've made that pretty clear. Um, and maybe that's just me or the Lord speaking to my heart and saying, what are you waiting for? Crucify the flesh. Stop flirting with the flesh. Father, we thank you that you are so faithful. And Lord, your word never returns void. I pray that you would seal it into our hearts this evening as you have uh, once again, Lord, given us quite a feast and we thank you that, Jesus, as you speak to us, we know uh, there is no fear or wavering, God. Even as David uh, is anointed by you, Lord, we are all anointed by you for steps that you've placed before us as well. Your perfect plan and your will, each and every one of us has uh, in your heart, Lord, a perfect place and will for our lives. And Lord, we just need to run and finish our race strong, Jesus. You are right there at the finish line. So God, I pray that you will not let any, Lord, in this flock, and I pray even in our area, the church, the body of Christ as a whole, Lord, you will not let any grow weary or tired. Lord, that every man and woman and child, Lord, will have that that uh, drive to continue to keep their eyes on you, Jesus, and see you at the end of that race and run like they have never run before, Lord, to run right into your arms, Jesus. And that's what I, Lord, I picture even tonight. Lord, fill us anew with your Holy Spirit, Jesus. Baptize us anew that we can do these things, that we can and always will be overcomers. We pray this 
in your name, according to your will, according to your promises, and by your love and grace. And your name, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you. I love you all. And have a a beautiful time in the Lord Jesus Christ.